0: the only way for me to get out of my depression, I actually had to go on an antidepressant and I'm still on it now. And I have zero stigma towards it. And, you know, from having shame and being disappointed in myself and feeling like that failure, I have none of that now because I've realized that i took the antidepressant which got my head above the water and stopped me from drowning but to actually get back to shore from being stranded and drowning in the middle of the sea that was when my yoga eating well getting good sleep having relationships and social connection feeling purpose all of this that's where all of that came in to actually thrive
1: hello to all the amazing heart to healing listeners i can't believe we've already come to the end of season three I've absolutely loved all of your wonderful comments about the episodes and just to know that it's been a real comfort for some of you going through your own struggles has felt incredibly rewarding. I feel like we've already got such a brilliant and inspiring community and I really can't wait for that to expand every season. So summer has begun and I know it's usually a time to rest, reset and enjoy yourselves but I'd love to share a few more bonus episodes with you that I've recorded which are too good to wait until the next season. So, welcome to the Summer Specials. On today's Summer Special, I am joined by Dr. Ali Jaffe, a junior doctor and the co-founder of NutriTank. Ali is passionate about mental health and its intersection with nutrition and lifestyle, which is why she is so keen to educate doctors about them both. Ali co-founded a BBC award-winning social enterprise, which is NutriTank. Its mission is to promote greater nutrition and lifestyle medicine within healthcare training due to the staggering increase of chronic diseases. Ali also believes strongly in authenticity and shares her own mental health struggles online with the hope of normalising the conversation. So I feel that she very much belongs on this podcast. I'd love for you to start by telling us about NutriTank.
0: So we started when myself and my co-founder were medical students and so that was our main target audience from the onset and we took to social media quite early on as millennials do in that kind of startup space and we started saying who shares this vision with us and wants to improve nutrition and lifestyle education within healthcare education and we essentially managed to get loads of different champions dotted across the country who wanted to join forces and help promote this mission and shared vision really so fast forward to now in 2023 we've got two-thirds of UK medical schools with neutral tank branches and essentially what that means is that at most medical schools there are societies that you can join if you have an interest in this particular specialty and you want to learn more and create you know, a community of like-minded people. So there's an oncology society, orthopedics, pediatrics, etc. But there was nothing around nutrition and lifestyle. So our Nutri-Tank branches are there for medical students and other healthcare students have started joining in as well. They're there for medical students to learn about nutrition and lifestyle interventions in an evidence-based way from experts that come and deliver talks either in person or virtually. And they deliver talks around topics from everything from nutrition and women's health to nutrition and you know, fertility, diabetes, you name it. And they also deliver information around how medical students can look after themselves and prevent burnout and improve their own physical health and well-being. And so our branches, who I'm so proud of, they all are headed up by very enthusiastic, passionate medical students who share the vision. And they've held over 300 events amongst themselves over the last few years, which is so brilliant to see. And what they've also done is they've been working with their faculty to nudge them to include more nutrition and lifestyle within the curriculum because centrally myself and my co-founder and a group of other healthcare professionals we worked in a big interprofessional working group with the association for nutrition and the General Medical Council, our regulatory body, to create a gold standard undergraduate medical curricula. So that was launched in 2021. That took about three and a half years of loads of discussions back and forth with key experts from dietetics, nutrition, medical professions, et cetera, to create this curricula. And now our little armies across the country are helping to make sure it's implemented and to really keep that momentum up. So that's a key output of the work that we do. We're also, it's in the name, we're a think tank, so NutriTank. We have produced our own academic publications in leading journals such as The Lancet, The British Medical Journal, which essentially shows the data and research we've done in asking healthcare professionals and students across the country as to what the barriers are to talking about diet and lifestyle with patients and why they haven't done so. And in one of our papers, which was published in the BMJ, the key key factor as to why doctors didn't talk about diet and lifestyle wasn't due to a lack of time which is what all the skeptical faculty predicted it was actually due to a lack of confidence and how do you get confidence you get confidence through education and making it into the mainstream and making it compulsory part of education and making sure there are assessments there to drive that learning as well as we know a lot of medical students function best like that
1: it's fascinating because it's a great combination of getting people interested in attending the seminars or the the events you put on because of a vested interest in their own health and well-being and ironically doctors tend to have a very poor lifestyle in terms of dietetics lack of sleep lack of exercise because they are just so busy and often overstretched so that's I think a very sort of useful component to it and then also getting the GMC on board and getting such accredited institutions who clearly like with the BMJ and all the the publications speaks dividends to what you're doing. And um, yeah, congratulations, really. I think it's incredible. And what a feat to have really achieved so far. And I'm sure it will just grow and grow. Thank you,
0: Pandora. Yeah, I feel like when you say it like that, it shows we have achieved a lot. But we're still, you know, going against the grain. And what the issue we found is that most of the time it is a self-selected group who are interested. So it's what we're trying to work on is how do we engage those that don't think they need to learn about nutrition, lifestyle, well-being, and who aren't really interested in this area of medicine, of preventative medicine. So we're still figuring out how to engage those hard to reach people, but absolutely just needs to be part of mainstream. And in the same way, when a doctor, I'm sure you've been to the doctor over the years, when they're taking your social history, when they're taking your assessment, they say, do you smoke? Do you take recreational drugs? How much alcohol do you drink in a week? Who? you live with and all of that and why can't we talk about diet and lifestyle there why is it just you know something that kind of gets pushed aside It's so essential we make it part of the conversation within a consultation and if there is a lack of time which of course we know there is then People need to be trained, the practitioners need to be trained with the right foundational basis of nutrition so they know appropriately where to signpost and they're not guiding patients to misinformation and they're appropriately referring to their expert colleagues like registered nutritionists and dietitians, because a lot of our research also showed that medics re- refer very inappropriately to dietitians because they don't understand what they do. They don't understand what their you know colleagues are doing and that's a huge problem.
1: And as you say, it's fascinating still to this day, given the amount of publicity that the vagus nerve now has in gut health and the microbiome and mitochondria and all that stuff. I'm just amazed at the amount of processed foods people still consume. And yet, as you say, when you go for a consultation or the doctor asks you these basic questions, nothing gets asked about your diet. Yeah,
0: it is really surprising. And I think what the key thing is, and what we've said from the onset, is none of this is about individual blame. It's about looking at the social determinants of health as well, and thinking about the context that that patient is living within. So, We know that socioeconomic factors will have a huge role in dietary choice and food choice because we know that deprived areas within cities will be part of food deserts where the access to fresh fruit and vegetables, etc. is limited. So it's about obviously doing the work from the medical point of view which is what we're doing because if people on the front line aren't engaged in this then when people are in crisis and when people do go for advice on their health then that's a missed opportunity but what we also need to be doing is food is so multi-systemic it's completely multi-sectorial so we need to be working with food policy makers and the government as well because it's all about agriculture, healthcare and big food all working together to improve the situation for people in society because some people aren't able to get out of the cycle of eating ultra-processed food because they are lacking access or you know there's just that degree of inertia that I won't get that diagnosis, it won't happen to me. My father smoked all his life and lived to 84 there is also that as well so there's so
1: many factors at play but I think the best place to start is education. How do you get the GMC I mean what's your long-term plan in order to really get the GMC on board so it will roll this out Nutri-Tank out effectively or the policy that you are proposing throughout all medical schools? So we started off campaigning
0: and taking to social media And it was all quite organic, I would say. We worked really hard at all the messages we were putting out, but we had a lot of people who agreed with us and had been doing this work for a while as well. So it all kind of came to a head and the momentum was there. And then in 2019 the GMC essentially tasked the Association for Nutrition to create this gold standard nutrition curricula. And so then it was the AFN who put together an interprofessional expert working group, which we were a part of. And then we created this piece together. And so I... Don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes, but the GMC I don't think needed much convincing. It was just the time was right in, in 2019. Um, moreover, we also worked closely with Jamie Oliver and his campaigns team, and that led to his public health team being able to propose an extra clause to be added into the NHS long-term plan in 2019 with a commitment to educating healthcare professionals around nutrition and lifestyle. So we did see that clause go in. The case is now that there's been a lot of lip service paid to it, a lot of high up people who agree with it. It's just the implementation is now the challenge. And we know that there is kind of disparity between different trusts and different areas and locations around the UK. So I think it's really down to individual trusts to now be incentivized to make these changes to their staff from, you know, a hospital food point of view and making sure staff are well looked after. And that's a project we're working on at the moment. And also, a lot of the education is done through different Royal Colleges once you qualify. So it's down to each specialist college as well. So Royal College of Psychiatrists, whatever it is, to be able to be incentivized to say this is the education we need of our practitioners and it is it is challenging it's it's gonna really need and what we've been doing so far is this bottom-up and top-down approach you can't do one without the other we need the people on the ground like us to be pushing for it and making sure that our colleagues are aware of the importance of talking about nutrition and lifestyle to benefit their patients and themselves. But we then also need the policy makers to say, yes, we'll help you roll this out. So we're getting there. It's a work in progress and we are seeing changes and a bit of a ripple effect. It's just such a huge thing to change an entire system and in such a big healthcare environment. So we'll see how we go.
1: This episode of Hurt to Healing is sponsored by our friends at The And Partnership. The And Partnership is a global communications business working with clients like Toyota, Mars, Coca-Cola, and NatWest, as well as charities like the Princess Trust and RNIB. They believe that by bringing diverse talent together in partnership, they can transform the way that great brands are built. They call it the power of And. On the Hurt to Healing podcast, we know that having honest conversations about mental health can help us to see different points of view and to better understand ourselves. Just like the AND Partnership's belief in the power of AND, we believe that by coming together to share our stories, we make ourselves and each other stronger. To find out more about the work the AND Partnership creates, visit theandpartnership.com. That's T-H-E-A-N-D partnership.com. And a massive thank you to the AM Partnership for supporting my mission and showing what we can achieve when we come together. Ali, what initially piqued your interest in all of this? Did you struggle yourself with mental health issues and things related to lifestyle and diet?
0: Yeah, so it's an interesting one. In the beginning, I think I was just very passionate about it from a systems change point of view. And... I had taken a gap year before I went to medical school and had visited Australia and America, where I have a lot of family. And I was really intrigued by their cultures around food and how they were slightly more proactive with their healthcare approach and a lot more around outdoor living and just talking more about food. So my interest was quite piqued because Australia and parts of America, obviously not all parts of America are very progressive in the space of integrative medicine, functional medicine. So I was already very interested in it. Then I started medical school and had really, I experienced quite a lot of disappointment in what I was being taught in the beginning because I had found out about all these amazing interventions and uh, research pieces that just what I wasn't seeing within my teaching. And then halfway through medical school, I actually started experiencing poor mental health and fell into a period of clinical depression. And NutriTank had already started, already gained quite a bit of success. And then I managed to really get myself above the water to seek help uh, because I really felt like for a long time I was drowning and then it really cemented for me the importance of nutrition and lifestyle interventions and holistic healthcare because I could really see it from my own perspective that I was burning myself out and burning the candle at both ends and I wasn't practicing what I was preaching essentially so I kind of had my own personal experience once I'd already started it and for me it just showed how patient care and you know, physician self care are two sides of the same coin, and we can't expect to treat our patients and you know heal them when we've got our own health to think about as well. So it was quite a grounding experience and left me with a lot of humility and also a lot of of nuance and understanding in the sense that for me to actually get out of my depression, I was so against it in the beginning, but the only way for me to get out of it i i actually had to go on an antidepressant and i'm still on it now and i have zero stigma towards it and you know from having shame and being disappointed in myself and feeling like that failure i have none of that now because i've realized that pharma aren't the enemy at all it's it's not none of that kind of polarized arguing that we see in the media it really is just about holistic healthcare and saying okay when you're in crisis of course pharmacological interventions are important but you need to be able to then arm that patient in front of you with all the other tools and skills for when they move out of the crisis because we know that it's never one thing it's all different pieces of a puzzle that's going to make you feel you know, get you into recovery and make you feel better. And that's how it was for me. I I took the antidepressant, which got my head above the water and stopped me from drowning. But to actually get back to shore from being stranded and drowning in the middle of the sea, that was when my yoga, eating well, getting good sleep, having relationships and social connection, feeling purpose, all of this, that's where all of that came in to actually thrive. And I think that's what conversation often gets missed out of things. You're either a naturopath or your conventional medic. I, for me, like to combine it all together. And it's all about timing and context.
1: I'm interested, do you meet any resistance? I mean, are there doctors particularly top down, who are quite dismissive, and are just reluctant to change the system?
0: I think for me, it's all about reading the room. So if I'm in an environment where you're kind of getting rid of those fires and trying to get people out of crisis, it's just not the appropriate time to talk about nutrition and lifestyle because you're in that acute stages. But when I am in situations with doctors who are just really dealing with patients who are coming back for maintenance um, of their chronic conditions or they've had the acute event and they've been in hospital for a while, like say when I was working on the stroke ward, that's when I think is the right time and so for instance I said to my consultants you know I just ask questions because I think for me that's the best way to engage people rather than preach my judgment and uh, give my opinions it's just what do you think about this so I spoke to my consultants on the stroke board and I said what do you think about the fact that you've given clot-busting drugs to help many of these patients uh, with their strokes survive and You can see on their bedside table now, they just have loads and loads of ultra processed food that have been brought in by their families, bless their families. They're trying to just, you know, give with love. And we know that food is a huge way to do that, but they don't know necessarily the harm. And it's undoing the work that you've done. I said, what do you think about that? And they gave me their opinions. Some of them, I told them about NutriTank. Some of them were very supportive and they saw a huge, you know, need for it. But at the same time, it's so challenging to create that change. And it's so challenging to create that change from a voluntary point of view. If I was, you know, given a job by NHS England to do this, it, it would be so much easier than having to do it in my free time and things like that. And it would be seen as a serious thing. And, when we were starting out in medical school, we did meet with some resistance, and there were faculty that was like, "I'm a successful doctor, I've been practicing for X number of years. I've never needed this information or this education, so why do you? I've managed to you know thrive in my clinical practice." And you know that's just inertia and resistance to change. People hate change. It's such a stressful environment as it is. so, I always sympathise when we're met with resistance because it is just such a pressure cooker of an environment as it is that even though we are trying to make positive change, sometimes it just is, you know, not the right timing or other things will take precedent. But yeah, I guess it's just about reading the room and just asking questions out of curiosity rather than judgment.
1: I was just thinking, as you said that as well, I mean, what would be long term such a great thing would be if you could give doctors almost a qualification, the ones who have done the NutriTank seminars and things, so that then the consumer or the patient can make a decision for themselves. Oh, okay. well, my NHS practice has three certified NutriTank GPs and six who aren't actually, I really care about the diet and and lifestyle interventions. And and that's what I want to focus on. So therefore, I want to opt in to see someone who has that qualification. And so it it doesn't necessarily become compulsory, but it becomes another string to your bow that patients can see.
0: I think that's a really great idea. And it definitely would create that dialogue between doctor and patient, which we're seeing so much more now in 21st century where there's a shared partnership between the doctor and the patient rather than in the 20th century where we saw a very paternalistic relationship where doctors would just tell patients what to do and that was that and they were given prescription and off you go so now we're seeing patients actually saying i want this kind of doctor i want this kind of education i want this kind of treatment
1: and yeah i completely agree that would be really good it's an interesting shift, actually, isn't it? And it's happened very relatively recently, I think, since this whole swathe of self-help books, self-education, interest in health, interested in, in biohacking, all these sorts of things are really bringing people's awareness to the surface of what they can do to help themselves and therefore prying when they see the doctor as to what else can I do. You're prescribing me this drug, but actually I've read about this and surely your drug works in this way but I think actually the way that my mind works it might be more beneficial for me to take x Mm. y or z
0: I'm really pro that and it's it's so important that patients essentially have informed consent when they choose to take medications that they're prescribed on and they're aware of the side effects and everything like that rather than just being put on them and left on them for years to come and I think unfortunately that's what sometimes happens with the system that a patient can be on a medication for years and not know really why what it does and if any of the other symptoms they're feeling are you know due to the side effects of that medication or if they're something else going on and I think that's why it's so important that especially in elderly medicine we see some brilliant nurse practitioners and others constantly looking at what medications elderly people are on and trying to reduce polypharmacy trying to see okay do they need to be on all of this because we know that you know, there's a burden in the elderly as well. When you are on too many medications, it can really um, have impacts on your nervous system. So I think it's just so important that patients are given the knowledge and are armed with the understanding and they have this relationship with their doctor where they can talk about what's best for them. And that's what we're seeing with personalized nutrition and the gut microbiome. And I think, what's happened, you know, in our healthcare system is just this one size fits all approach. And that kind of can be really detrimental to individuals because they realise actually, no, this isn't working for me. So I think it's important that everyone can really make their own decisions. And they're informed with side effects and with benefits of being on medications and you know, informed with other self care techniques that they can do alongside all of this to really benefit themselves. Because we know that from a pharmacokinetic point of view, that most medications work better when you've got a better diet and a better lifestyle. So it all works together.
1: Mm, It does. And it's, it is also that, slight lack of education, which leads people to think that prescribed medications are actually doing them good long term. And as you alluded to, the strain it puts on the liver often or vital organs and taking a course of antibiotics, the the damage that does to the gut lining. And actually doctors should be saying, okay, well, I'll write you out a prescription for these antibiotics, but then actually you've got to go on a course of probiotics in order to heal the damage that you've done to the gut lining. It's those sorts of interventions that I think are somewhat lacking still. I think the the issue actually
0: there with what you've mentioned, the reason why that's lacking, and this is one of the big barriers, I guess, to change is because of the lack of research. And nutrition research is so impossible to get the same level of data, same quality of trials as pharmacology, because randomized control trials are the highest level in the quality of evidence hierarchy but we can't really blind people from food you so when you double blind people you can obviously give a placebo pill and the real pill but how do you test that with diet it's so challenging and that's how science has been set up for you know centuries now in terms of evaluating evidence and so I also really do sympathize with doctors as well because a lot of the time they do want to say and take this probiotic or make sure you know, you're eating fermented gut foods and things like that when you're on antibiotics. But some are also really hesitant because they're worried, actually, there isn't enough evidence to say that because the trials aren't there and we don't know what kind of probiotic has the highest bioavailability to actually suggest that. So I think, yeah, it is really challenging, but I think there's enough out there for us to go on with and offer really well-established evidence-based diet and lifestyle advice. And just more funding needs to go into the research really as well.
1: And Ali, what's it been like to come out publicly about your own depression working in the NHS? Because that's something I am intrigued by. Do you think doctors feel able to be honest about where they're at with their own mental health? And it's an incredibly stressful profession and i can imagine it takes its toll in in a number of respects and there is a lot of mental health issues that stretch in in the profession what do you think is the general attitude towards it at the moment
0: i think unfortunately the short answer is no doctors don't feel comfortable to discuss their mental health and even though i've been talking about this for the last 3 years or so Even recently, about two weeks ago, a doctor confided in me about their mental health and being on antidepressants and said that I was the first person they've told in the profession because they were so worried about the stigma of being on medication. I was really stunned because, obviously... I know this to be the case but I thought you know things were getting better and improving but I think we still have such a long way to go in making doctors feel comfortable to talk and speak out and know that there's support there for them there's so many factors as to why doctors can become depressed or have poor mental health whatever the diagnosis is and a lot of it is to do with the system you know there's so many other factors in their personal lives as well and Blah 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 blah. You know, it, you it's endless. I'm picking it, but there is so much harassment and bullying in the system that there are so many horrible cases that you hear around why doctors have fallen into depression, or sometimes why doctors have ended up very, very devastatingly taking their own life. There's a recent article about two months ago talking about a junior doctor who had taken their own life, and essentially the family cites it towards harassment and bullying from her employers and you know we won't ever know the true story of that of course I'm not jumping to any conclusions but the point is I'm saying is structurally there's so many issues that are weighted against doctors that it does make it really hard for them to speak out because you work in a system where going to the toilet and going for a break is so challenging and it's not factored into your day. It's not only in A&E is it really factored in that they encourage breaks because they've seen such you know detrimental situations when doctors are overworked and it is such a stressful em- environment, A&E. But if these things aren't factored in, and doctors aren't kind of seen as people behind the profession and, and as humans that don't have superpowers and things. And they're just humans who are fallible, which is a really challenging concept for the public to understand, because, of course, there are awful stories where doctors have made mistakes and that has been at the cost of someone's loved one. So it's such a challenging environment to admit that you're vulnerable and that you need help. But at the same time, I just think it is that what I want to do with my work and my platform is just encourage people to do so no matter how hard, because if you don't speak out, if you don't ask for help, that is detrimental. And it's detrimental to yourself, your family around you, those that rely on you. And also it's detrimental to the system to keep losing doctors in such a tragic way. And there does definitely need to be more support there needs to be more of an embedded support system rather than a convoluted putting the onus on the individual doctor to reach out for support and find the right means it needs to be really accessible from the onset in induction this is where you go if you are struggling please don't struggle in silence this is who you speak to because we have buddy systems in a way but the challenging thing is when you're a junior doctor is you switch jobs every four months, every four months, you're on a different ward. Sometimes you switch hospitals after just one year. So it's so dynamic. It's so hard to create that support network and have those roots. And I think so many people see it as a weakness in speaking out because you're in that caring profession and there's that power dynamic and you don't want to cause that imbalance between doctor and patient. But for me, I always open up with I'm an us and a them, I'm a doctor and a patient and for me I see vulnerability as strength and being open about experiencing poor mental health has really been able to help me but also help others around me and I don't say everyone should be as open as I am because it's all about personal preference because it comes at a cost obviously if people don't take it well or say things on my platform which hasn't really happened but it's just to say that be open when it suits you. You don't ever have to be open publicly, but just make sure you tell one person and that you really ensure that you get the help that you need because there's just it's just absolutely awful, the statistics around physician suicide in the States and here. It's a tragedy that shouldn't be happening.
1: Absolutely. And, and as you say, it's really hard and there's got to be top-down change before people feel comfortable enough. To share, and Mm -hmm. some people feel that that will come at a big, big sacrifice, and that sacrifice just isn't worth making.
0: Yeah, I was having a conversation today with um, a clinical entrepreneur friend of mine, and he was saying that he's he's a GP by background, working on a tech innovation. He was saying that a lot of GPs will go to a private doctor or if they can afford it, you know, or go to another service that isn't in their local area because they're so scared of the stigma and people being aware that they're seeking help.
1: Yeah, it's just it is, it's so tough. And I think it's the case in a lot of professions, but particularly the medical profession, because obviously you're a medical practitioner. So if you aren't well yourself, then how on earth can you be doing what you do? when in Mm -hmm. fact, as you say, it actually gives you the insight, the empathy, the compassion, the knowledge. It's just, it's a really powerful tool that you can use to your advantage. And if you need a break and you need compassionate leave, then you should be given it.
0: I, I totally agree. And we had an eating disorders conference uh, a couple of weeks ago and a consultant psychiatrist who was just brilliant. She spoke about how she experienced an eating disorder five years ago and it just kind of came out of nowhere. And she'd been working in psychiatry for ages and ages. And she said that even as a psychiatrist, consultant psychiatrist, she stopped driving before she stopped seeing patients, because you feel that immense pressure of no, I need to be a doctor, I still need to see patients, but she knew she wasn't even safe to drive, because she could feel her cloud of thinking and everything. But it took her a while after she stopped driving to stop seeing patients. And I just think that you know stories she told just really highlights how ingrained this dogma is of I'm a doctor I'm superhero I'll I'll sleep when I'm dead I'll do it all at any cost and it's so challenging
1: Ali it's been such a pleasure talking to you I could go on for ages and ages but I think you are also time deprived so I don't want to take up too much of your precious time and I'd love to talk to you again in the future
0: Thank you so much, Pandora. I really appreciate your
1: insightful questions. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word.